Well, the um, recognition that I think most of us have is that we have attention span problems. I think that's true, not just for us in this room, but maybe just all of humanity. We have an attention deficit. And there's this guy named Cal Newport who wrote a book called Deep Work that tries to address this. And he talks about something he calls the hyperactive hive mind, where people can't focus on one task, but they keep fluttering about from task to task, from email to office conversation to another distraction. And this hyperactive hive mind keeps people from ever paying attention to anything. And, and the more hyperactive your hive mind is, the less of an attention span you actually have. Well, I think that's a problem most of us can relate to. But it's not the kind of problem that's limited to a cubicle in an office or to a student in the classroom. This hyperactive hive mind attention deficit is something that Christians deal with as well, except maybe we could phrase it as a moral hyperactive hive mind, where we stop paying attention to the transformed new life that we have in Christ and the way that we ought to be in this world, and instead we start looking at the world out there and the distractions that come across our news feeds and our newspapers every single day. So this moral hyperactive hive mind allows us and leads us to nurture the, the beams in our eyes and to sort of nitpick at the specks that pass through our vision in everyone else's lives. So when Paul in Ephesians 5 says, pay a careful attention then to how you live, we need to listen up because this is a word not just for the Ephesians 2,000 years ago, but a word for us today. Now, if we hear that phrase, pay attention to how you live, I think our default expectation is that Paul is about to direct us toward a period of self-isolation and reflection on the inner man, thinking about our inner being, the inner workings of the self through long periods of, expect of, of introspection and expectation of how we ought to be living. But Paul doesn't do that at all. Paul doesn't commission us to go off to our monastery to look inside of ourselves, to parse the motivations for everything we do, and to come out as more productive, attentive people. Instead, he's going to draw our attention in two directions. He's going to start by pointing us to think about the Christian and time, how we relate to time, and then he's going to point us to think about our relationship as Christians to the spirit-enabled community, which is the church in our life together. So basically this morning, we're going to have two, two lines of thinking we're going to follow. One will be the Christian in time, and the other will be the Christian in community. But let me pray that God will help us as we consider his word, and that we'll be more attentive Christians at the end of our time because of it. Father, we're grateful for this word that you've given to us in the letter to the Ephesians. This word and this call to pay attention is one that no doubt they needed, but perhaps we need all the more. But we believe that you can meet that need and that you have met it through Christ and that through the work of your spirit, we can be more attentive Christians as we dwell on your word now. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul says, therefore, it, because of everything he's already said, pay careful attention to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise making the most of the time. 
So we need to think about Paul's conception of time here. If we're going to make the most of the time as one way that we're going to pay attention to how we live, we need to ask, how did Paul understand time? Well, most of you are probably familiar with this distinction, but there's a distinction in in the Greek language between seasons of time and moments of time. So seasons of time we call kairos time. It's this larger season of time that we enter into. And sometimes we can think of this in a more narrow way as the seasons of a year where you'll have you know, winter and spring and summer and autumn. And we have this whole season of time, but there are individual moments of time that happen within that larger season. Those individual moments of time we'll, we'll call chronos time. If that helps you, you can think chronology, things that pass in succession. So these are successive moments, but then there are larger spans of time that we call kairos time. Well, when Paul tells us to make the best of the time that we have, he's talking about kairos time. He's talking about making best use of the season of time that we have. And the reason we need to make good use of the season of time is because the chronos time, the successive moments of time, the passing days are evil. Okay, so, so we have to distinguish here. Make use of your big season of time because passing moments of time are evil. What does that mean and how do we process that? Let let me try to help you, but we have to go on a rabbit trail first. Okay, so follow with me here. We have to, before we can think about Paul's conception of time, we need to talk about Paul's conception of wisdom because he says to pay attention to how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time. Now, as we've discovered so far in Ephesians, Paul's theology and his way of thinking is framed by Israel's scriptures. So anytime Paul talks about something that we don't quite understand, we can't really project our modern understanding of that concept of wisdom onto the text. We need to go back to the, the foundation for Paul's teaching, which is Israel's scriptures. And in Israel's scriptures, in the Old Testament, there is a whole book that, that's dedicated to wisdom and to wise living, helping individuals live not as unwise, but as wise. And that's the book of Proverbs. Over and over in Proverbs, there are wise sayings that give us the path to wise living. And multiple times in this book, we get a starting point to wise living. So for example, in Proverbs 9.10, in Proverbs 9, there's this proverb that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy one is understanding so if we're going to live not as unwise but as wise we need a starting point and and the starting point that the bible itself gives itself gives us is the fear of the lord so this proverb i think gives us two ideas about what wisdom is that helps us think about this the first is that wisdom is gained through a right relationship with god So if we're going to make the best use of the time, not as unwise, but as wise, we have to start with the right relationship with God. We begin with the fear of the Lord. Now that that phrase is a little uncommon to us. If we talk about fear now, we generally think of an emotion of terror or of being afraid, being scared or something like that. So is that what Paul is saying? To be wise, you need to have emotions of terror when you think about God. That's not what he's saying. Instead, this is just a a way of talking about having reverence or respect, a kind of fear that recognizes your smallness in God's 
greatness. And so Paul will pick up on this at the end of our text when he says that we need to do all of this in the fear of Christ. So he's just saying we need to have a reverence and a respect for Christ and for God. Not, he's not commending an emotion of terror. But ultimately, when we think about the fear of the Lord and what that is and how it makes us wise, I think the fear of the Lord is just a disposition that frees us from all inferior preoccupations. It removes from us the fear of man, the fear of the future, the fear of our own insufficiencies, and it gives us an orientation towards God that directs our focus to him. And and ultimately, I think that is the seed of wise living that will flower in the rest of the scripture. We orient our life toward God because that's where the answer is. It's not in us. So when Paul says to live not as unwise but as wise, he's not saying, you know, think about yourself. He's saying, direct your attention, and really orbit your life around God, who is the source of all wisdom. So when we think about wisdom, first, it starts with a right relationship with God. But then second, wisdom might include human ingenuity and thoughtfulness and intelligence, but it's more fundamentally focused on morality and virtue. So as you read all of the Proverbs, and as they talk about wise living, very infrequently does it mention your intelligence. So wise living might not have really anything to do with getting an A plus on a test score, but it has everything to do with virtue and morality. So as we orient our life to God, the source of wisdom, we start to live not just an intelligent life in human terms. In fact, Paul speaks against this when he says that the wisdom of the wise is not wisdom at all. Instead, it's orienting our lives to be lived out with virtue and morality. So true wisdom, true connection to the Lord relates to righteousness and purity and holiness and faithfulness, which then, as we see in the Proverbs, extends care and concern to the community. So it's no surprise that the second half of what Paul is talking about will focus on the life of the community together. Because wise living isn't just about me, And it's not even just about me and God, but it's me and God and God's people. So when we think about wise living and making the best use of the time, we we need to think about virtue and morality and fellowship with God, which rules out the notions of bare progress and, and utilitarian productivity is Paul's aim in telling us to make the best use of the time. So so wise people make the best use of the time, but it's not going to be measured in terms of intelligence scores or productivity factors necessarily. It will be measured in terms of our faithfulness to God and to one another. Okay, so so that's our sidebar where we have to relate to time wisely, and that includes relationship to God and, and to virtue and morality and other people. So let's get back to Paul's conception of time. So I pointed out that distinction between kairos time, overall season of time, and chronos time. Paul says make the best use of the kairos time because the chronos time is evil. So if we know the nature of the chronos time, chronos time is evil, it's bad. What's the nature of the kairos time? Well, clues to the nature of the season time, the kairos time, are sprinkled throughout the letter to the Ephesians. So over and over again, Paul has talked about time. He's talked about God's plan of redemption before time began, before the foundations of the earth. 
He's talked about what Christ has done in time at the right time for the ungodly, ultimately, as he marks out a new creation and a new humanity, which is the church. But I think most importantly, Paul is using this language because he wants to think back to a comment that he made in Ephesians 2.12. He wrote there, at that time, at that kairos time, and he goes on to talk about how that they were living without hope and without God in the world. At that kairos time, you were without Christ, excluded from the kingdom of Christ. Well, now he's talking about a new kairos time, the kairos time where you've been added to Christ, where you're with hope and with God in the world. So when he says, make best use of the time, he's just saying, you've entered into a new season of time before you lived outside of the kingdom of Christ and therefore outside of Christ's time. Well, now you are part of Christ's kingdom, and so you enter into the kingdom of time ruled and reigned by Jesus Christ. So our entry into Jesus makes us rethink time altogether. It's, it's as if we need to reconceive of our notion of time totally. And, and this is how I, what I think Paul is, is pointing us to do. He's trying to get us to understand that Jesus Christ is the king of this new season. It's been bought by him. It's been redeemed by him. He owns it. And we enter into it as his servants. And over and over again in the New Testament and in Paul's language, he talks about the fact that not only does Jesus rule over all things, he welcomes Christians into his rulership. It's as if we're the stewards and managers of Christ. And so what Christ has done is he's conquered the territory of time, and he's sending us out as his ambassadors to grab on and to harness the passing moments and to bend them into the season of Christ's rule and reign in the everyday. So we harness these passing moments that ultimately belong to the season of Christ's rule, and and we mark them with Christ's rule. So it's as if Christ has conquered a territory He's, he's has this possession, this parcel of land that we can call time, and he's sending us out to explore it and to put Christ's mark on every part of that territory. We put his flag of Christ's ownership and kingdom across the continent of time, if we want to think of it in that way. Now, if we conceive of time in this way, it acts as a critique of just about every productivity guide and time management book that we might come across. Most time management books will measure the best use of time in terms of just productivity or, or the way that you line up moments on your calendar. And that's not all wrong. But generally, that the use of passing chronos time is subsumed under kairos or seasons of time that are labeled in a particular way. So we're trained to label our seasons of time in terms of our stations of life. So I'm in a season of life of married without kids, or I'm in a season of retirement, or I'm, I'm in a season of the school year or summer vacation. So we mark seasons in that way, and then we order our passing time according to those seasons. Well, I think what Paul is trying to say is that those seasons are smaller seasons that ought to be under the larger season of Christ's rulership. 
So when we approach time, we don't approach it in terms of summer vacation or the school year that starts tomorrow or, or in terms of our retirement or anything else. Our ultimate season is marked up by Christ's rulership. So instead of saying, I will order my day in a way that will make the best use of my retirement in relaxation or, or some other thing, we order our days in the way that will make best use of the victory that Christ has already won in conquering time. This way of looking at it frees us from two other errors that I think are common to our, our natural lives. One error is to think about time where we look to the, to the future and say everything future is better, all progress is good, and eventually we'll usher in this eternal utopia through human ingenuity and invention. And so we must always relentlessly be pressing forward with invention and innovation, and that's where we'll find freedom. Well, what we understand is Christ has already purchased freedom, and there is a day coming that will be utopic, but it's Christ's utopia of his making, not of our own. So it frees us from that enchantment with the future, but it also frees us from this overly enchanted sentiment of the past. It frees us from trying to rescue the good old days and bring them into the present because what we recognize is that Christ is present in every age. And as one man wrote, and I think helpfully, every age is not as good as every other. We know this. This guy's writing in the early 1900s, and he's saying this in what we might call the good old days. Every age is not as good as every other, but all ages are Christian ages, and there is one which is for us and in practice surpasses all of them our own. And his point is that Christ is calling us to make best use of the age that we're in because it's Christ's age. So we don't long for the past or, or hope for the future, but we make best of the use of the season that we're in now. How do we do this? I want to give you two, I hope, practical suggestions. First, as you think about your own time management and your own productivity, I think you would be helped to align your motivation or inspiration for using your time well to Christ's rulership of time and not your own rulership of time or, or your own experience of time. So for example, some of us might find motivation to use our days well by thinking, I am already this age and I only have this many years left to live. So I need to just make the best use of the time because eventually I'm going to die. So we hear motivational statements like, you know, what good is a candle but to be burned and think, I just need to just press into this and, and lean into the days that I have and make the best use of time because of that. While that might be helpful momentarily, it turns into both a carrot and a stick kind of motivation that ultimately fail because our motivation for using the time well is found in us in, in what I have to offer on this earth. Instead, we need to realize that our motivation for the use of time is because of what Christ has already done in time. So, so I can successfully and righteously and rightly make the best use of time because Christ has already done it. So it's not me that's my motivation, but it's my, my desire to participate in the rulership of Christ over time that already exists. That, I think, is a much better motivation and one that will lead you to con consider time 
in a way that also factors in virtue and morality and love for others instead of just a productivity rate and, or, or test scores or something like that. So when you try to make the best use of time, first find your motivation and inspiration in the already existing rule of Christ over time. Second, as you approach your time management skills or your, your strategies, um, you need to do that inquiring what the Lord's will is rather than it seeking to impose your will on time. So, so we want to participate in the imposition of Christ's will on time, not merely your own. So Paul in this verse 16 says to make u- most use of the time because the days are evil. He falls, follows it up with this line in verse 17. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now, if you read the average time management book, it's going to tell you, envision your future self in, in that future self that you want to be, impose the will of that self on the time now because, because the future is always the offspring of the present. So, so be now who you want to be in the future. And, and they're telling you, what is your genuine will? What, what does the you inside of you want you to become? And, and be that thing, okay? Well, Paul is, I don't think, telling us it's bad to envision ourselves in the future, but we envision ourselves in the future according to the Lord's will. So we want to impose the Lord's will on time. And Paul is not talking about this mysterious, secret, hidden will of God that we must discover and and try to understand that and then shape our time by that. I think he just wants you to read everything we've read in Ephesians already, where he talks about the fact that God's will is to unite all things in Christ, that God's will is for you to put on the new humanity and participate in the life of the community as God's temple is a dwelling place for his spirit, setting off vice, that is not becoming of a Christian, and taking on the virtue that's been modeled in Christ. So we understand what God's will is, which is to redeem all things in him. And we participate in that, and we order our our lesser callings, or we structure them within that greater calling of attending to God's will to redeem all people for his name. So hopefully these two things are helpful. We want to think about the Lord's will on our time, and we want to be motivated what Christ has already done in time. So this is our focus on time, the Christian and time. We should press forward in that way. But then, having considered that, Paul shifts from thinking about the Christian and time to perhaps an application of the Christian and time as he starts to talk about the Christian and spirit-enabled community. So if you want to make the best use of the time, the sphere in which you do that is within the life of the church. And that's what Paul is directing us toward but he does so with something of a strange hinge verse transition. In verse 19, as he commands, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living. This command seems a little bit out of place for everything that Paul is talking about right here. And we might ask, are the, are the Ephesians in this church squandering away time in drunkenness? Is Paul trying to make a connection here? Is he attacking that sin in particular, and it just doesn't seem like that's what's going on. seems like if there was this major issue of drunkenness, Paul would probably have a more elaborate address for it than the simple command, don't be drunk with wine. So what is he doing here? Well, I think, and I might be wrong here, I think Paul has tapped into the, the Israelite scripture 
vision of wisdom in the wisdom tradition already. And now he's just carrying that further because over and over again, whether it's in the book of Proverbs or in other literature of that day, talking about wisdom, one of the ways that wise living versus unwise living is pictured is through drunken life versus sobriety. So over and over again, you'll, you'll see in the Proverbs, you know, don't, don't look on the, the glass with the wine swirling around because it leads to this kind of living. Instead, live righteously. And I think that's all Paul is trying to do. He's drawing on the ancient Israelite wisdom tradition, kind of comparing a, white, a, a life of drunkenness versus a life in the spirit-enabled community. But just because we might say Paul is trying to draw a contrast do we ignore Paul's command to not be drunk with wine? No, that command is still there and we need to attend to it, even if the purpose of including that command is larger than speaking against drunkenness. The, the larger thing that he's doing is portraying a picture of unwise living versus wise living. So let's think about this injunction against drunkenness for a moment. I understand that the topic of Christian engagement with alcohol is one that tends to be somewhat controversial even in, in our day. Um, so I want to make a few comments that may prove helpful. And if they are not helpful, talk to me afterwards. I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but there, there are relatively few injunctions against drunkenness in the scriptures. So when one shows up, I do think we need to think about it and try to think about it carefully especially given the fact that there are other texts of Scripture that speak about drinking alcohol, and so this text in particular is perhaps a, a conundrum. Four, four comments on Christians and alcohol that may, hopefully will be helpful. First, at Resurrection Church, there is no prohibition against the consumption of alcohol as a beverage because we don't find that prohibition in the New Testament Scriptures. Our church covenant does not include abstention from alcohol as part of the pr promises that we make to one another when we join together in this assembly. To do so would go beyond the commands of Scripture. Second, as we filter through these commands in, in wisdom in relationship to alcohol, in ancient times, alcohol was indeed strong enough for an individual to drink to excess, resulting in drunkenness. If this were not the case, there'd be no need for commands not to be drunk. Clearly, these kind of beverages were available. But we can imagine that Christians then needed in discretion and instruction and wisdom to partake in alcohol. And perhaps now, even as scientific processes have resulted in much higher ABV percentages, Christians now perhaps even need even more wisdom and discretion. Third, the life of the community at Resurrection Church, that is, our life together, should not find disharmony where fellow church members disagree about the prudence of drinking or not drinking alcoholic beverages. So there is no prohibition against it in our covenant, nor should there be disunity because of varying ideas about the prudence of it among our members. Neither those who partake nor those who abstain should allow their judgment about the prudence of consuming alcoholic beverages to become an identifying marker of who they are that either welcomes others into their relationships and community or excludes them from it. 
And I think both parties can be guilty of that. So we need to relate to one another in love and understanding regardless of whether or not we agree on this issue. Fourth, at Resurrection Church, just as there is no prohibition against drinking alcohol, there's also no place for drunkenness and reckless living. We take this command of Paul seriously and look at the larger witness of the scriptures and understand that drunkenness is sinful behavior and it's antithetical to the new life that we have in Christ. And it can be particularly destructive of relationships, not only in the family, but also in the church. So I want to say that if you drink alcohol here, you're welcome. If you struggle with alcoholism and drunkenness, talk to us. Because as Paul has already commented in Ephesians 5, it's better to allow light to expose sin, to allow sin in the darkness to continue to hold sway over you. So talk to us. We want to give you God's loving and gracious words of encouragement as you seek to live wisely in this world, making the best use of time. These comments, of course, do not represent a full theology of drinking alcohol or not drinking alcohol. And if you have questions, I'd be happy to talk with you, as would any of the other pastors here. So on this hinge command, that's contrasting a life apart from wisdom and a life that's filled with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit of God, Paul goes on to say that we must be filled by the Spirit. This small somewhat innocuous phrase is debated in how to translate it and how to understand it. And if you pick up any number of translations, you'll, you'll see this phrase variously translated as be filled by the Spirit, be filled in the Spirit, or be filled with the Spirit. Our translation has translated it as be filled by the Spirit, but even here there are questions about how to understand this. So we we have to think grammar here for a little bit. Maybe that's not encouraging or exciting for some of you. But but think about it in this way. If if you um, have a child in in this uh, swimming pool outside and you want your child to go out and fill up their swimming pool, you might tell them, son, go outside and um, uh, fill fill up the swimming pool with the hose or, or fill up the swimming pool by means of the hose or something like that. You tell your child, fill up the swimming pool with the hose. What, are, are you trying to get your child to envision him picking up this, the hose and dropping it in the swimming pool so now that the swimming pool is filled with the hose? No, you're thinking, fill it up with water by means of the hose, but, but it's with the hose that you're doing this. Well, virtually every one of these possible constructions has those kind of conceptual grammatical issues with it. In in we cannot adjudicate between which one we should pick or totally how to understand it here. I would, again, would love to talk about these things, um, but in the interest of, of directing our tr- attention in a way that I think is helpful, I think the translation, be filled by the Spirit, is helpful. And I think it's also helpful to understand everything that follows as the means by which we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So the, everything that follows you can conceive of as the hose that fills up the pool with water. There's a sense in which everything that follows, these commands that we're going to have about life in the community, are the means or the hose by which the Spirit 
enters into our community and dwells with us. That idea that there are things that we can do to be filled by the Spirit, are, that idea is problematic to some, and I understand it. It's hard for us to conceive that there's something that I can do that will, that will bring God's Holy Spirit to me. But I don't think that we should be totally, uh, totally um, upset with that or, or bothered by it. Over and over again in the scriptures, we understand that God appoints means by which he acts in this world. We, we think of his of prayer as the means by which God acts in this world. And everything that we look at here, I think we should understand is the various things that God calls us to do, and he meets us in those things. He meets us in these activities, and, and he fills us and enables us to do them. And so when we talk about, you know, worshiping together and praying and, and submitting to one another, these are not just the result of God dwelling in us, but they're actually the way that we invite God to continue to dwell in us as his temple. If that's troubling to you, I would encourage you to read from the Old Testament where the priests are instructed to do certain things that result in God's presence in the temple whether it's the offering of a sacrifice that is then consumed by holy fire, as you re read in Leviticus, or the operations of the high priest in the Holy of Holies, we understand that God gives us things to do that are invitations for God to dwell in us and with us. And that's what Paul is saying here. So instead of having a life marked by drunkenness, which is a picture of a lack of wisdom, we are to do these things which invite Christ by the Spirit of God, the very wisdom of God, to dwell in us and among us. All of these things take place in the life of the community, in the life of the local church. So if you are going to pay attention to your Christian life, if you're going to make the best use of the time, the way to do that is through connection to God's people where these things that I'm about to talk about are carried out. What this means for us as elders is that we need to facilitate these things that we're about to look at in the life of our church. I don't believe that these are the only means by which we invite God's presence among us, but they are ones that Paul gives special attention to here. So the pastors at this church need to make sure we facilitate these things. But there's also responsibility on the members of the church to participate in these things so that as a whole organized, organic body of Christ, we invite his spirit to dwell with us every single gathering that we have. There are three actions that include communal worship, prayerful thanksgiving, and mutual submission. So in verse 19, Paul instructs, be filled by the spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. What's the difference between psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? We don't know. These appear to be somewhat synonymous terms, um, and perhaps there's some distinction there. But to the best of our knowledge, as we look at all of the ancient literature and look at the way these words are used, we can't really distinguish between them. And so I think it's really helpful just to talk about them as communal worship together. Even the way that Paul frames it as speaking to one another. 
and then making music in your hearts to the Lord, we understand that there is some lack of clarity in the precision in which this is carried out, but there is certainly diversity in our expression of speaking truth to one another and in our singing and worshiping the Lord together. But beyond this, we recognize that there's a dual focus in, in our speaking and making music together. One is to one another. We sing together to encourage each other to speak truth in love to one another as Paul has already commanded. And this is why we try not to have speakers and instruments that are so loud that you can't hear each other because you're welcomed in Christ and, and, and you through your singing are speaking to one another. So we want to hear one another. We leave the lights on. It's not bad for you to notice the people singing around you. We do this to and for one another. So that phrase, we sing for an audience of one, is only partly true. We sing for an audience of two. We sing for one another. But the, the other part is true. We direct our words it, towards God. We make music and, and sing with our hearts to the Lord. Ultimately, we sing for him. So we invite the Spirit to dwell in our assembly through our communal worship, but then secondly, through prayerful thanksgiving. Verse 20, Paul continues to be filled by the Spirit by giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the language that marks prayer in the New Testament. We, we direct thanksgiving to God in the name of Christ who has secured all things for us in him. So earlier where Paul has warned against evil speech and replaced it with thanksgiving, he does this once again. We pray together, giving thanks to God for all things. This is hard, isn't it? Um, when, when we read, well, this week and, and the week before, long genealogies in the Old Testament, and, and we say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Well, it's hard sometimes to be thankful for some of these things. But I think as we give thanks to the Lord for everything, even things that we don't feel like giving thanks for, it reorients our interpretation of those things to understand them as God sees them. Things that are painful in the moment, we, we start to understand differently as we give thanks to God for them because we start to ex our, express our trust in the God who works through those things to conform us to the image of Christ. We, we give thanks to God for the good and enjoyable things and it helps us to reinterpret them not as commodities in this life, but as gifts directly from God for us. We should do this individually, but we should do this as an assembly, as Paul instructs here. And in so doing, as we attribute God's activity to these things, there is through our very words the presence of God now experienced in those events, where before, where we participate in them without thanksgiving, there's not a mention of God in them. But in our word and in our action, God is made present. So we worship together as a community. We prayerfully give thanks. But then finally, in verse 21, Paul instructs us to be filled by the Spirit by submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. This language of submission is not popular in our day. There, there is this idea that we should not submit really to anyone. We need to live for number one for me but as paul explains we live with relationship to each other in the fear of christ 
in an understanding of who Christ is and in a modeling of our lives after Christ. The Christ who submitted himself to the world as he gave of himself in sacrifice for the sins of the world and for the creation of the new community. So it is no surprise then that the new community, as the image of Christ on earth, ought to reflect that sacrifice and submission to one another, recognizing that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So from the beginning, as Paul instructs us to pay attention to our lives, we've noted that Paul does not direct our attention to ourselves, but instead he wants us to think about time in terms of Christ's lordship, and he wants us to think about the life of community in terms of the Spirit of God indwelling us and giving us life and joy that provides the means for our attention to life altogether. So we don't pay attention to ourselves in a way that, that is infatuated with who we are or perhaps depressed by who we are. Instead, we pay attention to our Christian lives in a way that, that gives primacy to Christ and that welcomes the community of the church. I think that this is good news for all of us. It's good news because when we hear that we must attend to our Christian life, that we must pay attention to how we live, there's a tendency for us to think, I am the source of, of becoming the best me and how I can live now. I am the one who's going to make me more like Jesus, and I'm going to do this on my own. That is an anti-gospel message, and, and it separates us both from Christ and the visible representation of Christ in the community. So if we want to attend to our Christian life in a way that is fruitful and sustainable, we need to think about time in terms of Christ's lordship over it and our participation in his rulership through time. And we need to think about the life of the community, not the life of the self. Knowing that in the end, Christ will bring the community and time together as he comes to redeem his body and bride on the final day in remarkable glory. But until that time, He's given us life in these passing moments with these people. So we ought to connect with one another deeply as we worship and give thanks and submit to one another, taking every moment captive to the rulership of Christ. In so doing, I believe that we will experience God's presence in the Holy Spirit. So let's commit to do this together. Let's press forward, making the best use of the time together as Christ's body enabled by his spirit.